Sing out the jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. So when we have our end of day TikTok sessions, have I ever showed you Ballerina Farm? Does no. that ring a bell to you? No, it makes me think of like toddlers and tiaras. Oh, well, it's not that. It's pretty far from that. Ballerina Farms is this big account on TikTok and Instagram. She is one of these Mormon mommy blogger types. And her whole thing is that I'm just going to read actually this description I found of her from this article because I'm not really warmed up yet. Some of the most popular content on social media these days is focused on homesteading, homemaking, and traditional lifestyles that many people in coastal cities would only dream of. In a modern world that is accustomed to seeing two parents working nine-to-five jobs, living in a cramped neighborhood, and sending children to a congested school every day, it can be somewhat mesmerizing to encounter the likes of Ballerina Farm, a Utah-based family that lives on a sprawling piece of farmland and raises cattle. Hannah is the wife and mother of seven children, and her Instagram page, Ballerina Farm, has more than 3 million followers. She also has 3 million followers on TikTok. She's known for posting some of the most engaging, highly watched reels that generate multi-million views. There's something about this family that people just cannot look away from. Perhaps they represent a simpler time, an idyllic version of American life that is seemingly separated from the technological buzz of the urban world. Okay, so this is a beautiful blonde-haired Mormon mom with seven kids and a, you know, tall, dark, and handsome rancher husband, and she's got videos on TikTok all the time that I watch, and, you know, it ends up on my For You page because I'm into that kind of aesthetic. Mm -hmm. She's making homemade mozzarella from farm fresh milk on her farm. She's taking her girls out while the sun is rising and they're going to their cow, which I can't remember the name, but it's something cute like Pepper or Daisy or something like that. And they're milking this cow with her young girls. And then she's putting brown sugar and cinnamon in the mason jar. And this is one of her girls, quote, favorite treats. And they put the farm fresh milk in the mason jar. I think you have shown me that. Yeah, I'm sure I have. And it's like, I talked to my friends who are also into this aesthetic about how we wish that we could provide this kind of life for our children. Anyway, there's this big controversy over Ballerina Farm basically because a bunch of girlies like me be jealous. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a wholesome version of Yellowstone, but we can't get there, right? Exactly. And the reason we can't get there and what is at the heart of this controversy is that her husband is the heir to JetBlue Airlines. Well, that makes it a lot easier (laughs) to get a ballerina farm. So her father-in-law's net worth is over $400 million. So you can get some prime real estate in Utah for (laughs) that, I'm sure. What is going on with the Mormon church? Like, can you help me understand why are Mormons so wealthy? Because her father-in-law is Mormon too. And so he was this Mormon Brazilian guy that founded JetBlue and Brazilian Airlines Like, why are they so wealthy? And I'll couple with that before you answer. The mommy bloggers are overwhelmingly these beautiful Mormon women in Utah. Okay. Well, just taking your last point first, if you are in a position where you have lots of money that you don't have to work for, you have more time to devote to blogging and whatnot if you don't have to do other things. 
to yeah, make an income. Yeah, I get that. But so why is there this concentration of wealth among Mormons? Maybe it does come down to doctrine more than history, but those two go together. It's part of their faith to be rich. Like Rashida Tlaib gets in trouble, rightly, for making anti-Semitic jokes, right? Yeah. About all about the Benjamins, whatever. But Mormons really be all about the Benjamins. It's part of their faith. I know That's they're super disciplined. You know, they don't drink and they don't do drugs. And I imagine if I didn't spend the early part of my 20s, you know, consumed with a lifestyle that involved both of those things. Not that I was like some crazy strung out. Yeah, you're not like you're a San Franciscan, but... Yeah, but like if I would have been focused on, if I would have been disciplined, I probably would have been wealthier than I am now. Yeah, and if I you guess would... If, if you do that three generations in a row, but it can't just be that. And it's more generations than that. But yeah, if you would put your bar tab in a Roth IRA <laughs> when you were 18 or whatever. And yeah, they start it, having babies at like 20. Yeah, well, they don't have to work, right? In these cases, I mean, there are some Mormon families are better off than others. Not all of them found companies like JetBlue. Well, and it reminds me back when Glenn Beck was on Fox News, that was when there was a big push uh, and there were all these new companies of survival food and all the prepper stuff. A lot of that is Mormon too, because it's part of their theology to be ready for the end times. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not knocking it. Yeah, you should have a basic readiness, but I think part of that readiness, aside from having so much food and water in your house, is monetary so you can provide. And then over time, that builds up. So is this a chicken egg thing? If if we become Mormon and follow their commandments, will we accumulate wealth? Well, I think that's where the history and the doctrine kind of come together. Or to put it in Machiavellian terms, you can plan all you want, but nature is still at least half of what determines your lot in life. So we could build an awesome house and then it could flood or there could be a tornado. But if we can afford insurance? Then you can rebuild it, but that doesn't mean your house isn't going to fall down. Okay, so we can take it back to Ballerina Farms and their controversy. So she grew her social media accounts to empire-like proportions and eventually someone wants to take down the king. So people were doing digging around on her and she is, hence the name Ballerina Farms, she went to Juilliard and she's like a top tier ballerina she's gorgeous she's beautiful she's had seven children and she looks like she's a 22 year old college girl <laughs> so she's making these videos and obviously she looks great and that's one of the most important aspects of viral video making is just to have a host of the video who people want to look at just because they're appealing attractive yeah but not only do, do people want to look like her they want to be and live like her because she has these gorgeous children running around at her feet and they're all happy and well behaved and she's always making these fresh meals healthy meals for her family and so people are looking at that and they're saying I want to be like that but in the background is a 20 or 30,000 dollar stove I mean I guess you don't have to have a 30,000 dollar stove to create that world for your family but it doesn't hurt so people are saying that she needs to disclose her wealth that she needs to be upfront otherwise it's unfair to make content like this and make women have pipe dreams that they can one day be like her i guess i should express this since my face doesn't translate on an audio format that's dumb 
So I was talking to my friend who also watches this, and we both decided that we are jealous of her. Well, yeah. I'm not afraid to admit that I am jealous of her. I want to live like that. Yeah, that sounds like exactly what we're trying to build. It's so wild because my grandmother grew up in a one-room farmhouse in the middle of Nebraska with no electricity. Her mom had to kindle a real fire over her stovetop to fry chicken at the end of the day. They kept their milk in a cage in the bank of a creek. Like, they were living this way not because they chose to out of some aesthetic appeal. They were living this way because they were poor and they had to. Yeah, and then you've told the story like your dad had two pairs of pants. My dad grew up so poor with a single mom and three siblings that when he was in eighth grade, he just had two pairs of pants for the school year. Mm-hmm. And my grandma still talks about how much she regrets this, but she purchased the same color. And so they were both brown. And so my dad was bullied by girls at recess because he was Mr. Brown Pants. Mm-hmm. And so it's like just a thing that, you know, sticks with you because you're impressionable at that age and that hurts. Well, yeah. So what is now something that people only dream of achieving in some sense used to be the thing that was standard for poor people. <laughs> and so it's just odd how cycles work. Yeah. And I want to unite both of those threads. So you talk about how that's how your grandma used to live and that's how we aspire to live but can't because you need the money that she didn't have. And people are jealous because they feel like they couldn't attain that lifestyle even if they wanted to. But just using your grandma as an example, she was born in poverty and then became the president of a bank Mm -hmm. eventually. So that didn't help when your dad was young, but eventually she made it and now she's got money. Well, I think about my great grandma, you know, kindling a fire to make dinner for her family at the end of the day. And now I'm sitting here with a computer in my pocket, my phone. Mm -hmm. But I also think like, why doesn't the family still live on the farm? And there's got to be a bunch of other families like that. And I think somewhere along the line, we misconstrued what wealth was. Hmm. We sold the farm so that we could, what, move to these congested suburbs and have some way too fancy of a car out front. And now we're looking around and we're like, well, these things don't make us happy. Maybe we shouldn't have sold the farm. Yeah, it's that old Mexican proverb about the fisherman who wakes up early in the morning and goes and gets the fish and brings it to market and is with his family all day. And then the wealthy businessman says, oh, I would love to do that sometime. But it's the poor Mexican farmer who or fisherman who does it every day just because he has to, kind of like your grandma. Mm-hmm. But that's what the wealthy businessman who works 80, 90 hours a week would love to do. And then when he retires, he does, but he could have done it all along. So I get the jealousy aspect of it, but I think I am not so blackpilled as to say that it's not attainable. We just have to make different choices. And the generations that led the Ballerina Farm family to be able to be where they are made better choices than ours did. And I think you and I and people who agree with us are just waking up to the fact that, well, we can make better choices now. And even if we don't get to enjoy that lifestyle, maybe we can give it to our kids or grandkids. Yeah. And that's the true impact of a legacy that, like I said, I think a lot of us are realizing in every single little decision that you and I make, where are we going to move? Which house are we going to buy? What type of house are we going to buy? Could be the decision that impacts how our great, great, grandchildren live i've been watching another show um 
on HBO and it's a similar storyline and it's called Ranch to Table and actually the women, the matriarchs of these families look very similar. It's another tall, beautiful, slender. She also has a background in dance. Blonde woman who is someone that you just want to be friends with or even be like. And she was given a farm. It's an eight generation farm in the middle of central California and she raises cattle with her beautiful tall dark and handsome husband I don't think they're also Mormons so this doesn't follow that stereotype I don't actually think they're religious at all she has two sons and I she sends them to school every day but she's making these beautiful extravagant meals from food that she grew on her land raised herself and I'm sitting in the middle of my town home looking outside at a bunch of cars and other apartments. And I'm like, I want to be like that. She has however many acres, thousands of acres. And it's because she had ancestors who moved from Spain and bought up all of this land when people were discovering the frontier. Mm-hmm. But I look at these pictures that they flash on the screen when they're telling her family history and in the introduction of the show. You can tell that these people are not poor fishermen or whatever from labormen from spain these are wealthy people yeah so how many ancestors even in spain did they have accruing right right but they had somehow they had the forethought that property is wealth and i don't know where in the line of history we lost that value well so we keep dancing around the subject it comes out all the time in political debates between Uh, just for want of a better term, libertarians and Marxists. So free market people and Marxists, the Marxists say, look, these few wealthy families have all the property, have all the land, have all the wealth, and so everybody else is stuck, and you're not allowed to live that life unless you have the privilege of having had those ancestors who made those good decisions. And so now we need the state to come in and take the property and redistribute it to be more even, except it never works when they try that. I just want to emphasize that even though it makes people jealous, it's the same debate we used to have when I was growing up about the unattainable standards on the magazine covers when you were at the grocery store checkout line. Oh, I'll never look like that movie star or that singer on the cover of Cosmo. Okay, maybe not. You'd have to have a personal trainer and a personal chef, and even then you'll need a lot of airbrushing, right, to look like that. You might hear Odin groaning in the background. Yeah, he can't read. He gets jealous of that. have a huge dog. But my point is, just as there have been unattainable standards, whatever, even Christianity is an unattainable standard. Jesus says, be like me, and none of us can be. I'm not going to hate on Jesus for that. That just gives me something to work towards. So when I was doing the prep for something that we're going to talk about later on in the show, I was looking at the photo of a man who was completely burned alive during the industrial era in the United States, and the industrial revolution in the United States. And I don't know what happened and I kind of stopped listening after I saw that photo because I looked at it and I felt so bad for him and I thought when they were forming these unions people were under such horrible working conditions why did they choose to stay in the cities were they like us tricked by someone or some cultural movement into thinking that there would be prosperity on the other side of the fence like were they convinced of some sort of life and if they just kept working to tomorrow that they would be able to achieve it i know a lot of the drive to go into the cities was the promise of a better life you were stuck on the farm dirt poor thinking that you could do better than that if you moved to the city 
And was that a lie propagated by forces whose best interest it was into having like a large, essentially slave labor force? That was an argument at the time. Yeah, that they want to take your labor from you so that they can continue their lifestyle, but you were never going to be able to achieve it. And it's like that scene in Bug's Life that I love to quote. The grasshoppers are in their bar, basically. And do you remember the lead grasshopper's name? Hopper. Hopper. Some of Hopper's underlings have decided that maybe we should just give the ants off a season from collecting food for us. Mm -hmm. And Hopper gets enraged and he goes, if we just let one ant stand up to us, then the rest of them are going to think that they can stand up to us. And the ants outnumber us 100 to one. And so he's using these grain seeds which is the form of like their alcohol as an example a metaphor for this and he says if they stand up to us then they are going to destroy our way of life and eventually he slams this tube of grain seeds and they all come crashing down and pile and bury his underlings that are trying to question his leadership Hmm. so it's all about quashing the idea of revolution or independence of the individual from whatever you want to call it, the man, the, the, the person or the power structure in charge. Yeah. Quashing that idea before it has an opportunity to take hold and people become woke to the fact that they're being tricked. And so I wonder, I wonder if we're at a point where the ants are starting to wake up and Flick is like you know, leading this revolution. And maybe Ballerina Farm is showing us that there are alternative lifestyles available, but there's the saying that truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And the Ballerina Farm example reminds me of when this happened in Russia, and I would hope we wouldn't repeat that mistake because the communists were able to say, oh, look at these kulaks with their really nice, fancy farms. They're the reason you peasants are destitute. Let's take their farms from them. And then you can have land, too, when really the causes of the problems, whatever the excesses of the czar or whoever else, the power structure was enabling to make people miserable, taking the property away from the kulaks and torturing them and killing them obviously didn't solve Russia's problems. So if we're going to say, hey, look at ballerina farms, let's make that an aspiration, not something to tear down. Let's not confuse them for the power structure that makes these inequalities that we're talking about. There's an appeal used by leaders in those Stalinist, Leninist, are those words? Yeah, those are (laughs) words that refer to evil people from the past. I just like adding ist and ish to the ends of nouns because my brain is not caffeinated enough to come up with something more sophisticated. One of those appeals, and even Bernie Sanders himself likes to go down this road, is that you'll never be hungry, right? Like, You'll never be hungry because we'll always provide for you. I hate to keep bringing it back to Disney movies, but that's what Scar told the hyenas when he was going to overthrow Mufasa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they were all hungry. I can't free the individuals ourselves of all of the fault for becoming suburban wage slaves or whatever you want to describe our current state as, as what that article talked about, both parents working nine to five, shipping their kids off to daycare centers otherwise known as public schools it is also our own fault because we have never you don't have to be rich to make sourdough bread 
You know what you have to do? You have to think about it. You have to work to do it. It is work. You have to look up a recipe. You have to make the sourdough starter. You have to feed the sourdough starter. You have to make a place for it on your counter and you have to maintain it. It's like growing a plant Mm -hmm. or raising a young child. It takes constant work and effort. And then once the sourdough starter is finally ready to go, I don't even know what you do next because you know what? I've never taken the time to actually make sourdough bread, but I know you do something with it and then it requires sitting it in a bowl and letting it rise or whatever. It takes a lot of time and your first loaf is probably going to suck and then you have to do it again and again and again until you get something that works. And now when it's finished, it's going to feel great because that's how humans are designed is we're purpose-driven creatures that want to feel something in our hands that we made and did. This is the fruit of my labor and it feels good to own this and and have dominion over this thing that can do good for me and my family. It will nourish our bodies. But you don't have to be rich to do that. No, you just have to be intentional. We need an intro. Huh? We have to do an intro. Oh, shit. Welcome to episode 11 of the Free State Podcast. For today's podcast, we have our good old friend Austin Hine on. To tell us why we were wrong about Kevin McCarthy and that fight over whether he should be House Speaker. Austin and I worked together in Congressman Thomas Massey's office a few years ago, and all three of us, what, how could we describe ourselves? Libertarian conservatives? We're out of that milieu, even if some of the ideas might not fit into a box. Yeah, we're like edgelords. We're all super... Well, you call me a statist all the time, so... Yes, you I don't are. know if on I count certain issues. We haven't gotten there on the podcast yet. We'll save that for later. So we talked to Austin about some of the ins and outs of the House of Representatives, and then we get into current state of the GOP, and we end up talking about the train derailment in Palestine, Ohio. Hope you enjoy. Well, last episode we had our first voicemail from our friend Austin Hine. And he has graciously agreed to come on the podcast and tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> so. Hi, Austin. Gladly. How are you guys doing? <laughs> doing well. Thanks for joining us. Jay's and I's history with telling each other that we're wrong. It's the only reason, actually, I agreed to date him. Have we already talked about this on a podcast? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Okay. The only reason I agreed to date Jay's austin was because i had just moved to dc and i was interning and he was already working at the place i was interning and we were having a debate about immigration and i have always been like maybe it's just because i'm a contrarian and the people i'm working amongst often are conservative i've always leaned more like open borders or milton friedman kind of approach free market approach to immigration (laughs) And at one point during the this argument, Jace turns to me in front of my boss and all of our co-workers. He goes, we need borders, Laura. And I was like, that was so hot. <laughs> Do it again. Because <laughs> no one had ever told me I was wrong. And I don't know. I really like confrontation. <laughs> she does. So anyways. Yeah. Sorry. So we were wrong about Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. No. So I was, I was kind of laughing because you guys were talking about the the kevin mccarthy holdouts and because there were there were 21 holdouts when uh, he was running for speaker yeah when he was running for speaker that's right and which you know led to i think what 15 ballots or or whatever um it's the most since 1860 something Mm -hmm. um and i you guys said on the podcast that that what was the point of that 
and you know you got the 72 hour rule which means nothing and you know just because there's rules committee here but um i think you guys overlooked like a lot of what was won on that i'm a i'm actually a huge fan of chip roy um mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys you guys follow chip's career but he's like yeah, I like right him. now, arguably the best member of Congress. He was kind of leading the whole fight on that. So yeah, seventy-two hour rules probably got what what got the most press. And yeah, what you guys said on the podcast was was right. Is that the seventy-two hour rule means pretty much nothing, especially when they constantly change the rules around. And really, seventy-two hours is is not quite right. It's more like a thirty-six hour rule because they start tabulating days, not hours. It's it's a whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But there were a lot of other things that was gained for conservatives in that fight. And I think the most important to talk about is uh, seats on the rules committee, because you just talked about what the, what the rules do, suspending the rules and all that. But who sets the rules for each vote is that rules committee, which is the second most powerful committee in mm-hmm. in the House. And we got three seats on that Um from from strong conservatives, that'd be Chip Roy, Ralph Norman, and Thomas Massey. And I think that that's like the huge, the biggest win from that fight is is seats on the Rules Committee. I think they were using McCarthy's ambition perfectly well, and now we're going to have a representation on, on these committees that we've frankly never had before. So the Rules Committee, like you said, does a lot. The most influential aspects of what they do that I remember from when I was working in Congress was that they determine which bills make it to the floor for a vote. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but like how that vote goes. I don't know if you remember what they call open rules versus closed rules. Basically, starting under John Boehner, we switched to what is called a closed rule system. Prior to Boehner, pretty much any member of Congress can offer an amendment onto the floor for whatever bill they're talking about, whether it's the NDAA and you wanted to amend it to have less spending or I, I don't know, uh, the COVID relief bill, if you wanted to get rid of something out of it. Greater oversight uh, that, of that, all the weapons that we're sending to Ukraine. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Or just stripping those out entirely. Um, <laughs> those would have been uh, amendments that you could have offered at any given time. But basically when Boehner got in and he had so much contention with the uh, Tea Party members that were in the caucus, he switched to a closed rules. So basically by controlling the rules committee, he shut off all amendments that weren't friendly to him. That's one thing I don't think a lot of, if you want to call them everyday Americans, realize about the legislative process is that so much of these authentic or otherwise, you know, bills that those type of people, everyday Americans, would think would be a good idea. For example, I remember Thomas Massey would always introduce a bill. Every single Congress, he introduces one that you can only sponsor a bill that addresses one topic at a time. Those mm-hmm. types of bills that aren't silver bullets, but would have you know a very good effect on the way that Congress is run, are never even brought to the floor for a vote because of procedures. So all of these well-intentioned and, and, and good ideas just get caught up in procedure and the Rules Committee is the one who has their hands all over procedure. I looked at the fight and I saw that as getting three seats. And I was like, man, that was worth it. That was worth all the clownery. So are you familiar with exactly the procedure with which how this went down? I was kind of watching it from the sidelines on TV, the, the speaker fight when they were trying to elect McCarthy. And what 
was happening? Like, were they passing notes to each other? Like, was Matt Gates going up to McCarthy and saying, you know, like on writ- in written word, like, if you accept these terms, we'll vote for you? Like, how was how are those things negotiated? Do you are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, pretty back room. I mean, the the cloak rooms it, when, from your time in Congress, how that kind of worked. So they I, have, they I have, actually got to go into one of the cloak rooms one time. He snuck did me. Did you? I, he snuck me in there. I was pregnant and I was wearing, <laughs> I remember what I was wearing because I felt so ridiculous. I mean, you're familiar. Your wife is about to deliver a baby. So like at some point in your pregnancy, there are only misfit things that will fit your oddly shaped body. So I was wearing, <laughs> right. this, I was wearing this bright pink tunic shirt. <laughs> And then I was wearing like a striped blazer over top of it. And the only thing, Austin, the only thing that fit me at this point was leggings. And so I tried to dress them up as best I could. And so I was wearing this bright pink tunic over some leggings and like a striped blazer. I didn't know I was going to go into the cloakroom that day. And so he takes me into the cloakroom because he has to do this interview, but it's in between votes. So he literally has seven minutes to do this interview or whatever it was. So he brings me in because he needs all of our phones to be able to make this happen because someone has to be checking the clock and then the phone to do the phone interview and then another phone to get text messages from staff. And so I'm not supposed to be in the cloakroom because, okay, so what is the cloakroom? The cloakroom is this, there's a Republican and a Democratic cloakroom and it's basically where people talk about backroom deals. This is the back room where that happens. These rooms have been here forever. They serve snacks. There are drinks available. This is where members of Congress go to like rub elbows and negotiate with how they want a certain piece of legislation to look and make deals. And it is still like that. Like what you're picturing in your mind, like the smoky kind of cigar lounge vibe. It is really like that. And they have the old telephone booths still in there. Eventually, during this interview, one of the the leadership's boys comes up to me and is like, can I see your badge? And he's like, you need to leave. <laughs> but I got to spend like a whole I got to spend like a whole 12 minutes in there. <laughs> 12 minutes. I was going to ask how, how long how long you made it. That's funny. And I was just staring at the wall because I was like, you are not supposed to belong in here. You they know you stick out in here like a sore thumb. So I was just staring at the wall and I was like, please, no one come and talk to me. But I'm going to try and absorb all of the time in here that I can because it was it was really cool. Uh, you know, Massey, he's a bit of a rule bender. Yeah. So it didn't, didn't surprise me. <laughs> From what I understand, they did the negotiations in the cloakroom. Uh, also, I, I don't know if you guys read that Kevin McCarthy took over the speaker's office before he was speaker. I mean, they were like ordering pieces into there. And, and oh, I man. know... Uh, yeah, Matt Gates was trying to throw him out. He was uh, he was doing like an appeal to the architect of the Capitol, which I think is pretty funny. So you have the GOP members of Congress, and then you have the Freedom Caucus, and then you had mm-hmm. you know when we were working for Thomas Massey, he always said they want to give me their moniker, but I'm too conservative for their moniker or something like that then justin amash Um, had the liberty caucus and the only two members of the liberty caucus were him and thomas yeah pretty much yeah i think there were a couple floating members but uh, they never kept a role because it (laughs) because 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 government registries are are (laughs) anti-liberty i guess we have three good members on the rules committee now and that came out of the speaker fight so that's a tangible win they have to wait 36 hours to read 20,000 words or however long these bills are. So still impossible. The NDAA from 2019 was almost 3,500 pages Pages, long. not words. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And this is just in the House of Representatives. So what 
I'm not trying to be a turd in the punch bowl. And it's, but. I'm, I won't even use but. <laughs> it's good. It seems like that's a step in the right direction. Are there any practical effects that this might have? So I'm thinking Thomas Massey might have a better rules package for some of these votes. So they'll actually have to take some positions on some controversial right. policy ideas and then voters will be able to pick. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that that's the biggest win. I mean, Congress hasn't voted on anything truly controversial and I don't even know how long. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that they don't they don't vote on the right to life. There's a reason they don't vote on on usually flat out gun control or anything like that. I guess they did a little bit last year, but uh, usually they got a lot of rails on the votes. So to, to protect their members, because you got to remember a speaker's job, their constituency isn't their voters back in their district. Their constituency really is their members of a caucus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Kevin McCarthy's job is to protect all of his Republicans, and which is a big umbrella mm-hmm. that he's trying to protect. And so he won't let them do controversial votes. And that was the same thing with Pelosi, too, because you don't want to hurt them in their home districts. The idea of having rules committees being able to actually put some of these controversial votes up onto the floor, you know, our members of Congress need to be held accountable. And I personally, I want to know which Republican is really serious about life begins at conception. Yeah. I mean, even on the left, you want people to go on the record for that kind of thing. And you would think in the aftermath of Dobbs repealing Roe v. Wade, you would want actual votes and to see where people stand on that issue. Otherwise, we exactly. keep talking past each other. To me, to me, that's the, the biggest win is that there's an opportunity for those types of roll call votes that we can actually hold members of Congress accountable and see who's who are the rhinos. Well, and it's a good point you made. They Congress passed whatever gun control measure it was. I can't remember the exact details right now, but it reminds me in the aftermath of that Las Vegas shooting back, was that 2017? Dianne Feinstein was making the argument that the current gun laws weren't sufficient to get rid of bump stocks and that if we really wanted to get rid of them, Congress had to pass a new law. So she was in the middle of drafting legislation and getting support for that when the ATF changed the definition of machine gun on its own. And yeah, so, they, they tend to just go rogue. <laughs> yeah, but if we can get the rules committee and take baby steps toward actual legislation again, maybe that is a sign of hope for the future. On that too, are you familiar with the Holman rule? I'm not. Okay. So the Holman rule was a rule from say the late 1800s, I think way back then, but allowed amendments to appropriations bills so that Basically, it allowed Congress to fire specific employees or cut programs from federal government. So say, yeah, the ATF goes rogue. The House can vote directly on <laughs> cutting a certain you know, program or a certain salary from whoever did it. Basically, it's, a, it's another check on, on executive authority. And that was part of the speaker fight, too. And I, that mostly had to do with the COVID stuff. So, say, trying to get accountability for Anthony Fauci. But I think that there's potential for those types of votes on all sorts of um, administrative positions. So this is the first time I'm hearing that. So you're saying if Jace someone... like, talk dirty to me. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> so someone... And the House notices something in the executive branch they don't like. It can come to a floor vote quickly. Like, what's the procedure there? You kind of talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, but there's supposed to be 12 appropriations bills to fund each section of government. So what you would do then is for, say, the bill to, to fund the Department of Health, you can 
then offer an amendment to fire Fauci, essentially. And so those types of things would be now possible under the under the new rules package. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I think they should be doing that anyway. So it, to the extent they weren't able to before, that's awesome that now they have that avenue. So talk to me about Chip Roy. You made a bold claim and you said that you think he is the best member of Congress or one of the best members of Congress. I'll let you clarify. Mm-hmm. But I want to know what you think his future is and kind of the same breath. Is there a future for the GOP to become less frat boy, more conservative like Chip Roy? Uh, I hope so. I don't know. I, I think he has ambition from kind of what I understand. I mean, there's a lot of rumors of him potentially challenging Cornyn. Uh, and John Cornyn is, a, you know, the current senator from Texas, uh, not, the, the one that's not Ted Cruz. Uh, and, <laughs> Cornyn's ter- <laughs> and Cornyn's terrible uh, on all sorts of issues. Uh, in fact, like the, the main gun control package that passed last year was written by Cornyn. There's rumors that Roy is potentially challenging him and in a primary in 2024, which like as a, as a gun guy that like gets me super excited. <laughs> so, yeah. but uh, as far as, is there a way to kind of get this away from the frat boy to be a more conservative party again? Uh, I don't know. And I think if you look at the 21 people who oppose McCarthy, something like, I want to say like five of them are freshmen and, and there, there are more conservative freshmen too, that weren't on that list who I have some hope for the ones on, on this list that I, I want to highlight real quickly is Andy Ogles and he's from Tennessee and like I saw him, I, did you guys read that horrible story of the gay couple who adopted some kids and then were basically using them as sex trafficking, and child pornography and all that? I tried to hide um, that from her. That, uh, he did. He successfully yeah, hid that, that from me. Wow. Gross. I think that was that was like two weeks ago, I think. But uh, I saw Andy Ogles, again, a freshman congressman tweet out something about firing squads for them. And I was like, man, that is so <laughs> awesome. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not a big death penalty person, but, you know. Uh, but for pedophiles. Something about, in some yeah, cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, there, and, there, and there was, there's just, to me, there's just something to a freshman member, member taking a bold step on a, an issue like LGBT stuff mm-hmm. and actually trying to push the envelope on it. Congressman Massey talks about these people who get into Congress and they're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and got to be conservative, and then eventually they get swamp bit, which is still pretty possible for a lot of these guys. If your first vote in Congress is to oppose the Speaker of the House of your own party, it's pretty telling. It's a good encouraging sign for these guys going forward. You want to talk about Ohio? Yeah. So um, on February 3rd, okay. there was a train traveling between Ohio and Pennsylvania right on right in the Ohio side of the border. It derailed and then there were these chemicals that had been released. Vinyl chloride? Vinyl chloride being one of those chemicals and they burned some of it in a controlled burn so that it wouldn't keep leaking onto the ground and polluting the groundwater. Who's they? The railroad people, the and city the state, people, government and people. And the EPA, all of them are working together to clean oh, up. Oh, look, aliens. Yeah. No. Oh, look. <laughs> Did you see that spy balloon up in the sky way over there? Definitely not in this direction. Pay let's no shoot. attention to the smoke clouds coming from the train. Quick, let's shoot down some UFOs. So well, I'm going to do the blow your mind meme thing. I don't think it's about spy balloons or the union rail negotiations at all. I think just like people have been leaking bad stories about Kamala Harris in the press, 
This is all to make Pete Buttigieg look bad. Southwest Airlines had that big meltdown while he was on, was it Christmas vacation? And now mm -hmm. all the trains are running off the track. They're just trying to make sure that Mayor Pete can't run for Senate and then president. The trains are homophobic is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to prepare for this episode i was watching clips on youtube of chernobyl the show that was on hbo mm -hmm. did you watch that series i started it and never finished it but oh, uh, i always heard it's really good i, I should, yeah I, I should give it another go now is it. now is a great time so i was watching yeah, i know i was watching clips and in particular there was this one scene of i don't know what position he held in the soviet union but he was higher up on the rungs and he was sitting in on a meeting of government officials and people from the Chernobyl site. And they were talking about strategy on how to handle what was going on. And this was at the very beginning. So the public didn't know yet. And I wrote down the quote that he says he gets up and he says, do you even know what this place is called? This city? We call it Chernobyl. But do you know what it's called? And some man says that it's called Vladimir Lenin something something it's formal name but it's named after Vladimir Lenin and he's this old man with a cane who needs help getting up and he says it is in my experience that when the people ask questions that are not in their own best interest they should simply be told to keep their minds on their labor and leave matters of the state to the state we seal off the city no one leaves and cut the phone lines contain the spread of misinformation that is how we keep the people from undermining the fruits of their own labor Yes, comrades, we will all be rewarded for what we do here tonight. This is our moment to shine. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I was I was listening to that and it's just encompasses man's arrogance and ego. And I feel like that's always how these big disasters in history start without knowing any of the details of what happened in this train wreck and what caused it. And maybe what safety measures or routines or maybe somebody was just having a bad day and decided to skip one step of whatever they do to check the wheels or to check the engine or to even turn it on. Maybe they just decided to bypass some steps along the way. And that was the thing that made this disaster go down. But when I look at all of these cases, the Titanic or famous plane crashes or anything, it usually goes back. The root of these problems is just the arrogance of man and thinking mm -hmm. that we can so master nature that we don't need to, you know, we're not actually the subjects of it. We have dominion over it, which we do, but we don't control it. And so it's that mistake that leads to vinyl chloride blowing up into the sky, killing all of our dogs. <laughs> well, so that's the question, right? So the media is now covering it. Like we had decided to talk about the story. And then as we were waiting for today, everybody started talking about it. And it seems like the stories coming out now are the EPA and state officials and the train company are all saying, it's no big deal. There was a little bit of a leak. There was some oil leaked. There were some chemicals that go into making PVC pipe leaked. But we haven't detected anything in the groundwater. We're going to install special wells to monitor it going forward. We've checked 200 homes. The air quality's fine. Everything's fine. We can end the evacuation. Everybody go home. But then I'm seeing reports. There's one woman that keeps being quoted 
She said all of her chickens died. Someone's dog died, and then you hear about like the contaminants making it all, all the way to like the Missouri River, and you're like, okay, I don't know what PR class these government officials take, but sometimes <laughs> like sometimes I just want them to tell me, yeah, you know what, it's pretty bad. To be honest with you, right. Yeah, you're expecting entirely too much. And in order to be honest with you, they would have to be familiar with the facts. And I was watching a video of a guy whose job it was to study these historic tragedies. And he says, here's what always happens. This is a pattern that follows in these types of events. What happens is the company of the the railroad or the ship line or the airline or whoever owns the product that is the source of the disaster has their own talking points that is to cover their own butts. And then those talking points are just parroted by the media and government officials because media and government officials are far too lazy to do their own research. And if they do their own research, they're probably going to find out that they contributed to the disaster too. But I was told that the EPA is the one that's supposed to respond to environmental disasters and keep us safe. And it's the EPA saying that the exposure that people are experiencing now is below the threshold that will cause problems. You might be lightheaded if you were right next to it. But now they're saying it's all fine and they'll monitor it going forward to make sure it stays fine. Are you telling me the experts that we have delegated the power to control this aspect of our lives don't know what they're talking about? Just take the J&J shot. It only the blood clots are few and far between. You might die, but it's likely that you won't. Do you guys remember the gold mine thing in in Colorado a few years ago? where They polluted a river. Mm -hmm. How's that going? Yeah, and then... (laughs) Uh, it was pretty bad. Yeah, you live there. <laughs> like, How's the water was... taste? <laughs> uh, the water's fine now, but I don't know, the, the EPA said, you know, no, the water's totally fine. But if you like look at the color of the river, it's like <laughs> diarrhea brown. You're like, oh, man, that is <laughs> objectively not fine. Well, there are videos from the creeks and the surrounding waterways. in, And so, OK, it's Palestine, but people in the area call it Palestine. So we're going to call it Palestine, or at least I am. Okay. Because Little Bill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you never want to contradict what the locals say. Afghanistan. Right. I had an embarrassing moment like that last week. I was in New York City in Soho and I said, Oh yeah, we ate at that restaurant on Houston Street. I think it's Houston or Huston or oh, something. I had no crazy. idea. I remember giving Thomas a hard time once. Because uh, Versailles, Kentucky, I was like, Versailles, really? You know, it's, it's Versailles. <laughs> yeah. And and he was like, he's like, well, do you call it Paris too? And I was like, all right, that's a pretty good comeback. I, I <laughs> Great comeback. So the rivers in East Palestine are full of dead fish. Oh. And there are videos of people going on walks and they're filming these pumps that are pumping this water still. So like as of the last video I saw was February 12th. So two days ago when we're recording this, they were still pumping those creeks to try and filter out the contaminants. Good. I'm glad they're cleaning it up. But I I wish government could be comfortable saying we don't know. Right. And we're monitoring it. We're doing the best we can, but we don't know. And you're going to have to be okay with that. What I think will be the end product of this in terms of talking points is that, oh, it's just trace contaminants in your soil or your air or your water or whatever. And they say the same thing about fluoride in the water. And yeah, I'm going full Alex Jones here for just a minute because the frogs are gay. So just for a second. So they say it's about dosage of fluoride in the water. But as we're slowly discovering, there's just trace amounts. There's just small amounts of microplastics 
and everything. They're testing the guts of infants. And they infants have more microplastics in them than some adults. There's just trace amounts and everything. And if I'm just a scared normie, you know, with skeptic tendencies, I don't want trace amounts in everything because trace amounts in everything adds up to something a little bit more than trace amounts. Well, and you're talking about microplastics. This is a chemical that's used to make plastic. So it's just part of the same problem. We already have too much of this in our bodies. When they say that the chemical that we were talking about, the vinyl chloride, was just one aspect of the spill or the burn-off, but the particles as a result of that latch to water. So now it's in the sky latching to the rain clouds. So they say the next thing to come will be acid rain. Potentially, yeah. There's something that kind of makes me chuckle a little bit about the the solution is just to burn it. Like, yeah. that's, that's what they it's just, Like, I don't know, just light, light out on fire. I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, we've been watching The Last of Us. And in the last episode, they're like, oh, the government officials that whatever was left over, they, well, they drove the infected underground. So they're gone and it's fine because they're underground. But then, spoiler alert, in the last episode, the truck, like, crashes into the car, dives into the basement, and disturbs the cell of these infected people. And one of the infected people has become so mutated over this time that he's like this giant monster. And it's like, oh, yeah, there are unintended consequences for almost everything. Mm. One last thing I want to talk about about the train. We read an article from Jacobin Magazine, the socialist opinion site, and they're arguing that the reason this happened was because the whatever railroad regulator won't force the railroads to put in a special kind of break and that it's all lobbying money that's making our railroads unsafe and that we need to force all of the trains to have these special kinds of breaks that they've resisted because it'll put them out of business. So I was interested in the railroad lobby angle as well and I was trying to do some digging on the history of that and railroads are one of the oldest technologies in the United States so I have to imagine that their lobby, their political lobby force is pretty big. And, you know, the railroads had influence from mega wealthy American men like the Carnegies and the Vanderbilts and who's another one? J.P. Morgan. Rockefellers. Rockefellers. And one thing that never happens in Washington is reform. And so I have to imagine that those men with their influence over Washington, D.C. and their interest in railroads, even though this may have been hundreds of years ago, built up a power structure within Washington, D.C. that has yet to be totally broken down and gone away with. Yeah, if you're worried about lobbying and corruption and private industry taking control of regulators, they've had plenty of time to do it. The first regulatory agencies were set up to regulate the railroads. But then where I know that we would diverge from, you know, like the authors at Jacobin is I also question the unions and when you're talking about this brake technology. The union in this case is for the electronic brakes. The article quoted them saying they oppose the lobbying efforts from the rail companies because they're saying not having to invest in this technology is a financial windfall, which means they don't really care about the safety aspect. They're just mad that they don't get to split the revenue yeah. with the rail company. There's a video I saw this morning when I was doing prep for this that the train 
that exploded in East Palestine was on fire 20 miles before the site where it exploded. Yeah, the details I'm seeing, it was like a faulty axle or something. So it didn't have anything to do with the brakes. And the Jacobin article was saying if it had these brakes, this disaster might have been averted. Well, if your axle's broken, I don't know that the brake would function either. But we'll find out. This is an emerging story. Thanks for coming, yeah, Austin. Anytime. We're singing all day and you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know. Night time, the morning time, yeah. We're going strong, headed up down the river. Oh, Lord, I feel the reveling. I feel a change on the rise.